It's late in the evening and William Westgarth is lost. The year is 1844 and the English businessman is stumbling through grassy woodland above the British settlement of Melbourne. The smell of smoke hangs in the air. Past towering river red gums and yellow box trees, Westgarth is drawn to the light of campfires burning by a creek. Here, he meets a group of indigenous Wurundjeri people who help him find his way back home. Ten years later, this place would become the site for the first building at Melbourne's first university. The quadrangle was based on the architecture of Oxford and Cambridge, a beautifully manicured lawn surrounded by grand cloistered arches. Westgarth saw the University of Melbourne as a symbol of enlightenment and progress. But for the Wurundjeri people he met that night, it brought devastation to the land, knowledge and culture they had cultivated for thousands of years. My name is Angus Thompson and I grew up learning a lot about people like Westgarth and not much about Australia's first people. The University of Melbourne is home to 12 museums filled with thousands of objects. Each object has its own story, but who gets to decide what stories are told? This isn't just a story about the University of Melbourne. This is a story about Australia, about its colonisation and about the hidden histories behind the objects we keep. This is Uncurated, a podcast from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Our podcast is made on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Each episode, we take one object from the University of Melbourne's collections and look at the forgotten stories behind them. Our first object, a little book, yellowed, fragrant and full of cloth. Reporter Clancy Barlin looks at a chapter of the James Cook story we weren't taught in school. heard about Captain James Cook, I was in primary school. As little kids, we heard how he set sail from England in 1768 across the world and down through the Pacific, discovering new cultures, new places. The first explorer to land on the eastern coast of Australia in 1770. That's how most Australians hear about Cook. He's pretty well baked into our national mythology. But when I grew up, I realised he didn't really discover these places, you know? I mean, the cultures, the people, the long, long history of inhabitants. They were all here well before Cook wrote them into Western history books. But one way or another, it was certainly all put into books. At the University of Melbourne, we have a book from 1787. It's modestly titled catalogue of the different specimens of cloth collected in the three voyages of Captain Cook. You see, what I didn't know was that Cook wasn't just an explorer. Throughout his travels in the Pacific, he was also a collector. Across galleries and museums all over the world are items from the Pacific, traded, given and stolen. What Cook didn't realise at the time was that he had stumbled across one of the oldest forms of textile making in history. In this tiny little book at the Bailey Library 
here at the university is the story of a Polynesian art form of ceremony, gender, and identity. So it's a catalogue of the different specimens of cloth collected in three voyages of Captain Cook, blah, 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 1787, so fairly early. I started off by talking to Susan Millard, the curator of the Rare Books Collection at the University of Melbourne. This book contains genuine examples of the cloth and other organic materials from Tonga, Tahiti, Hawaii and Jamaica, all collected during the three voyages made by Captain James Cook with printed commentary and handwritten annotations. And it's not your usual book. It doesn't have many words in it. Or pictures. It's filled with fabric made out of bark. The pages are yellowed and dimpled, frayed around the edges, and bound in a striking marbled cover. Inside are pieces of cloth in varying sizes and shapes, colours. Some of the pieces have patterns on them that hint at a bigger, more ornate pattern that they've been cut from and cursive, spidery handwriting accompanying each piece, like a diary entry. Many of the samples were collected by James King, an officer of Cook's third and last voyage, during which Cook was killed in Hawaii. Some samples are accompanied by a story of how they were traded or otherwise acquired. Not always the best stories, those ones, but, you know, interesting historically. The book was published in London in addition of only 30 or 40 copies, and no two copies are the same. And this made my ears pick up. I was under the impression there was just one of these books. You mean there's 40 of these books? What was Cook doing? How much cloth was he trading? Buying? Was he buying them? Did he steal them? And also, just on that too, I was looking that up earlier and I remembered that Donald Kerr, who used to work at the University of Otago, did a whole census, actually, of them, which is really interesting. Apparently... Donald had spent several years trying to track down and count every copy in the world. If I was going to learn more about the book in our collection, I'd have to talk to him. Donald Kerr used to be the Special Collections Librarian at Otago University in New Zealand. He's since retired, but that hasn't stopped his fascination with the bark cloth known as tapa. Well, I guess they're, first and foremost, I think they must have been one of the first sort of tangible relics or pieces that came back from the Pacific with Cook in the, in the three voyages. Before long, it became clear that Cook had collected a lot of this material. And when it got back to London, a mysterious entrepreneur by the name of Alexander Shaw had bought the collection and decided to sell them as books. And they were extraordinary things to look at. And of course, when you looked at them, they're all different because there are small slivers of tarpa cloth. There's large pieces. They're all arranged differently. They're not in any correct or sequential order. What do they look like? Most of the books um, contain 39 samples of tarpa, which is beaten bark. Um, and some are, as I'm saying, transparent and quite fibrous. Others have got wonderful reds and blacks and browns and some of them are small slivers some of them are reasonable sized squares and some I've seen are actually fold out bigger than the book itself the image is quite striking I mean opening them up is is like a joy because one sample is white or off-white cream you turn another one and it's multicoloured they have their own beauty as well there's an art art aspect to this as well so how many copies of the books are there? people kept on saying 30 copies, 45 copies. You know, these numbers kept on 
popping up and you think actually how many were there or are there around the world are there 45 and so I started really just thinking well let's try and find out according to Donald's list they're all over the world the USA UK Australia Canada New Zealand Hawaii even a private collection in Germany have you got one how many pieces are in your book etc and to be honest Clancy, the thing grew. It was like a beast, uncontrollable. And of course, some people didn't realise what they had. At last count, and to be clear, Donald says his census needs an update, there's around 65 that can be accounted for. But to date, no. And there are copies that are referenced in bibliographies and, and articles, and they're just missing or just haven't been spotted. So, what was Cook doing with all this bark cloth? When I first saw the book, I really didn't think it would be hard to answer that question, but it quickly became apparent that the book in our library was really only a fragment of the larger picture. So each piece is unique. It's a a unique little fingerprint from that bigger piece of, of Tarpa sort of DNA, if you like. What we needed was someone who knew about collecting. I suppose the difference between a collector and a hoarder is a collector is more is more refined in their kind of selecting of material uh, and probably paying more for it. I found Nat through Donald, kind of. When I realised I wasn't really researching a book anymore, but instead a whole series of potentially lost, mysterious artefacts, I had to cast out as many lines as possible. After about a month and around 22 different contacts later, I was finally put on to Nat. Hello, my name's Nat Williams. Someone whose career had allowed them a unique insight into these strange type of books. Until last year, I was the Treasures Curator at the National Library of Australia, where I had been for 21 years. And the position of Treasures Curator was a delightful one in that I got to work my way through the collections, looking at things, writing about them, blogging about them, publishing and putting them into exhibitions and putting them into the Treasures Gallery at the library. And that says that the National Library has five copies of the books in their collection. And from a sound point of view, which you're very interested in, the backdrop to most of these villages throughout the Pacific, whether it's Tonga, uh, Samoa, um, Hawaii or Tahiti is this beating boom, 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 boom of the tarpa cloth being beaten by wooden beaters against sort of wooden anvils of different types, different different beaters, different anvils, different wood. Nat remarked that it reminded the English of the sounds of industry from back home. They're making stuff out of bark, out of trees. They're, they're having these ritual, ritualistic and interesting cultural lives. And tarpa cloth worked its way into their lives from, you know, a baby's born wrapped in tarpa cloth. A, bo- a person dies, the body is wrapped in tarpa cloth. You need to put a room divider in your, you, you know, your modest house, you make it out of tarpa cloth. You need a rain jacket, you make it out of tarpa cloth, thick tarpa cloth, which you then paint with emulsions from, from trees and various things and, and, and plants to keep it waterproof. I was realising that this material was integral to life, a kind of bedrock to cultures throughout the Pacific, used in everything from blankets to wicks and oil lamps. And so how did Cook get this material? And when Cook would come into places like this, or Wallace before him, or people after Cook, I mean, Cook does it three times, of course, 
Um, he is offered this material as in trade for various things from the ship. It might be glass, it might be metal implements, it might be nails from the ship. They had a problem with the soldiers, the sailors stealing nails and, and swapping nails for sex with the local women in Tahiti. And my view on these books really began to change here when I learnt more about how the cloth was procured. Nat explained that the trade operated on a few different levels. Some of it was reciprocal. You know, I'll have that piece of metalwork, that bucket, that iron bucket for, you know, uh, that large piece of beautiful tarpacles. People uh, were very interested in iron objects because they saw the utility of them very quickly and they were very interested in anything that was the colour red. Red was the colour of blood, it was the colour of power. Some of it was stolen. Without doubt, it's happened. Without doubt, it's happened. I'm not making an apologist for that. And sometimes it was traded as a measure of self-preservation. The people of the Pacific were well aware of the danger the English posed. You knew that they could, with these mysterious weapons, could blow them to pieces. That they, these, the word got around pretty quickly that these people could be dangerous if you got on the wrong side. So there was a lot of effort put into the reciprocity of how you met them on the beach. One way or another, more and more tapa was collected. There's this sort of process of of trade going on constantly, and hence all this tapa cloth and other materials. Um, sculptures and implements and pieces of jade from Maori New Zealand culture, etc., all making their way back to Europe, into England and into famous collections. To be shipped back to Europe. Um, what's interesting about the Tarpa Cloth book and, James, uh, and Alexander Shaw's project is that um, most of the pieces in the... the majority of the pieces in the books are from Hawaii. Now, Cook doesn't go to Hawaii until his last voyage, and it is his last voyage because he dies on the beach at Kealakekawa Bay in Valentine's Day, you know, 1779. So he ends up being killed on the beach because he acts sort of foolishly and tries something on with the Hawaiians, and the Hawaiians weren't like the rest of the Pacific people. They weren't going to be pushed around by Cook the way he had he had with other people. You know, he used to kidnap them and hold hold the chief or the chief's daughter or something as ransom until they returned the boat to them or until they returned whatever they wanted. I was realising that the drive to collect these books was not as simple as it first appeared. For so long, the mystery of what was to be found in the Pacific remained elusive to European explorers. The English brought trinkets, the English language, venereal disease and Christianity. While the local people traded or gave up their culture, their words, costumes and objects. Tapa was all of these things. You know, this idea that people want to own something of the past because it connects them to a narrative that's much bigger than their own. That was right. There's something about these books that is so, so alluring. I mean, the people who collect them and curate them get kind of obsessed. When I started this journey, I thought there was only one book. I started asking around and found all these people tracking down the different copies. And it turns out there might be 66. Nat said 75. Some have said 100. We just don't know. I thought the book was about Captain Cook. The Cook didn't even put the books together himself. I thought Tupper was... Like, honestly, I don't even know 
what tapa really was, what it meant, to the people who collected it, and to the people who make it. I'm Tui Imagillis, and I am a tapa cloth artist. That's what I label myself as. Uh, I work alongside my mother a lot in collaboration. She's from Fava'u and Tonga, and I get a lot of inspiration from her, and I, um, I just grew up around her working on, on the art, the craft, and it just it inspired me to be who I am today. It wasn't until I met Tui. So I, that's what I do right now, is I am a full-time tapa artist. <laughs> that it all started to make a lot more sense. I can give you a pretty basic rundown. Um, I've actually got some material. I bought. I thought I'd bring some material too um, to show you the the laitutu, which is the inner bark of the paper mulberry tree. So you've got an outer bark that you've got to take off and you use, you can use a knife. Some people use shells, like Hawaiians use shells, uh, but you can use a knife, you can use your teeth. <laughs> That's how we got taught in Falevai um, by an elder. And you just strip yeah. it all off, and then you have this beautiful bark that you soak overnight. This is what my mum's taught me to do. You soak it overnight, and then in the morning, you can just beat it, and it produces this beautiful cloth. Tui aims to rekindle and preserve this ancient art. The knowledge that Tui has has come from generations of women passing down the practice. Kokaanga is like, it's the practice where all the women get together and they create the cloth. And what the men do is they actually cook. <laughs> they go and source the koka, which is the dye usually to rub over the kupesi. Something that was completely missed in Shaw's books was that this was a craft led by women. Women are very important in Tonga. Like, uh, the daughter would be almost put at the top <laughs> of everything. Like, she would be the most important person. The female is... Um, very well respected there. The knowledge and practice stretches that way, and then you, and then if you put a piece over the become top, inextricable from the community. And like the Tongans used it as bedding, they used it, you know, for celebrations. Mum used to used to tell me how she, yeah, they'll they'll dress up in it, um, and just sleep with it because it was so warm. It's so natural. Amazing. So it's a very versatile versatile fabric it seems to sort of infiltrate every part of uh of life it's it's life for the tongans <laughs> it's their koloa it's, it's their culture it's their tradition it means everything to them it strikes me that the way tui talks about tapa is far from the books i've been hearing about held in museums behind glass or locked in rooms where they can only be accessed with special permission i asked tui given the significance of of tapa in her life how she felt about Tapa being placed in museums. I think, you know what, Percy, I think it's great that there are museums because they're being preserved, they're being protected. If you look back in Tonga, I'm not sure what's happening like in the royal home. I don't know if they've got anything in the archives there, but I'm pretty sure there's nothing that old in Tonga. I keep asking myself, when the Europeans first showed up in the Pacific, did they know what they were doing when they began collecting Tapa? Was it just a memento to them, or did they see the tapa as an extension of identity, the way that Tui feels it? I feel I have a duty to keep on spreading the Tongan culture, and I can do that through the art. I can do that through the bark cloth. I really wasn't expecting Tui to say that she loved tapa being in a museum. And now I feel a little silly. I mean, what she said makes a lot of sense. I can't undo the actions of the past. But by freezing those moments, 
In a book, for example, you can learn of the histories that were hidden, that only reveal themselves over time. Oh, and by the way, I know this started off as a story about Captain Cook. Well, nowadays these books of Tapa are the most concrete reminder of Captain Cook's journeys in the Pacific. And Cook himself ended his days wrapped in Tapa. I'll leave it with Nat to finish that. They returned the remains to the ship in a decently wrapped piece of fine cloth. And what they're talking about is tarpa. So, you know, the irony is that Cook is wrapped up in tarpa in a parcel, given back to them to say, well, this is what's left of him. Now that is a stunning piece of historical irony. That story was made by Clancy Ballin and Tushia Wong. Next time on Uncurated, we look at a little plant caught between ancient knowledge and modern-day science. Uncurated is made on the land of the Wurundjeri people by graduate students at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. Our producer is Nell Gerards and sound design is by Clancy Barlin. Our theme tune is by Ben Salter as part of the Living Instruments Project. Special thanks to our executive producers Rachel Fountain and Louisa Lim, and thanks also to Ryan Johnson, Ryan Jeffries, and everyone in the museums and collections department. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us and it helps other people find the show. I'm Angus Thompson. See you next time. <laughs>